This is The Weekly for Friday, July 19th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With the second round of Democratic presidential debates taking place later this month on CNN, what is the state of the race? We are one year out from the party conventions, with a record number of candidates campaigning in a hypermedia environment, all vying for the Democratic nomination. So what are the lessons from the first debates on NBC? How are the frontrunners preparing for round two on CNN? And with two perceived lanes to the nomination, a center lane and a progressive left path, which candidate would be the toughest challenger to President Trump? Questions we answer with Jerry Seib. He is the executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. And in a recent column, he wrote the following, quote, It is not too soon to wonder about the political consequences of the Democrats' progressive wing. He joins us in just a moment. But first, one of those progressives, Senator Elizabeth Warren, during a recent town hall meeting. I have two parts to the proposal. Part one is that we say uh, that we are going to roll back student loan debt for about 95% of students who have debt. That's part one. And part two is to make sure that we never get in this mess again on student loan debt, and that is to make college universally available with free tuition and fees. That from a recent CNN town hall meeting. And Jerry Seib, as you listen to what Senator Elizabeth Warren is saying and other progressive Democrats, what are your thoughts? You wrote about this recently, Democrats pushing to the left but need moderate swing states. Well, look, I think there's an interesting debate underway in the country about college education, why it's gotten so expensive, why it's pricing people out of the market, why it's leaving people crushed with debt when they get out of college. And I think that's uh, an extremely important topic in the 2020 race. And it's been interesting that around the country, some cities and some states have started to try to redefine public education to be no longer K through 12, but pre-K through at least two years of college free public education. So I think there's a move in that direction. I think politically the problem uh, with what Senator Warren has said and what uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has said in an even kind of more um, uh, expansive way is if you simply forgive everybody's student loan debt, a lot of people in the middle income brackets who sacrificed to send their kids through school or frankly uh, kids who worked hard to get through school without uh, accumulating debt are going to feel that they've been left holding the bag. You know, we sacrificed to pay for our college education. Um, the people who didn't sacrifice as much accumulate a lot, of, a lot of debt for themselves or their kids are going to get off scot-free. I think there's a potential problem with that in political terms, and this is one of the difficulties I think Democrats have more broadly as they move to the left towards some more progressive ideas that are very popular at the base of the party they encounter some uh, um, landmines in the middle of the political spectrum. And yet, at the moment, that is where the enthusiasm is among Democrats. Right. And and it's certainly being reflected in what Democratic presidential candidates are saying. For the most part, uh, you have a big push toward Medicare for all, a single-payer government health care system, which just four years ago uh, would have been considered too radical to be the basic position of the Democratic candidate. Hillary Clinton didn't go there. When Obamacare was passed in Congress, that was considered a bridge way too far. But now that's kind of becoming the Democratic uh, presidential field's mainstream position. Uh, You have the idea of decriminalizing uh, crossing the border illegally. Um, That's going to bother some people as well. You have 
uh, n notions of much higher tax rates, a 70% top income tax rate, uh, essentially double what it was uh, when, uh, when, when the Reagan tax cuts went into effect. Um, and these are all very popular at the political base of the Democratic Party. I think the, the difficulty is the states that Democrats need to win, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, have a lot of people who aren't on the left but rather in the middle. And the question politically is, while this excites the base, does it improve the chances of the Democrats actually winning in 2020? To that point, Jerry Seib, there was a recent piece in the Outlook section of the Washington Post in which it looks at the state of the Democratic Party and progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the adults in the room, including Steny Hoyer and Senator Chuck Schumer and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and the lessons from Reagan's victory in 1980 and his landslide win in 1984. Your thoughts about that? Well, I think what Ronald Reagan did was either figure out or walk into the room at the right time because the country had moved to the right. And he crystallized it and he captured it and he took advantage of it. And then I think Democrats seeing the same thing kind of adjusted in the 1990s. I mean, Bill Clinton arrived. He saw that the, the country had moved away from New Deal liberalism and he took the Democratic Party from the left to the center. And the Democratic Party was quite prosperous there. I mean, Bill Clinton won two uh, terms, despite some obvious uh, controversies and scandals. Um, the, the party took control of Congress. It, uh, it did well in the center. And now I think there's a, a questioning of that. Was that the proper response to what Ronald Reagan did? I think Reagan moved the party uh, because the, the country had moved. I think Democrats now look at the country and say, well, maybe the country's moved left. We should move there as well. I think there are a lot of Democrats who worry that that is a misreading of where the country is, that if you look at the Democrats' success in 2018, it came not because they won over places uh, where the, uh, the electorate had moved left, but because they did well in the center. They won back House districts in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and places like that. Uh, by by basically running against Donald Trump from the center, not from the far left. So that is a real debate within the Democratic Party. Why uh, did we do well in 2018? Why did we take back control of the House? And what does it tell us for 2020? And there are two quite different lessons that have emerged from that. And you write about that, the two different camps within the Democratic Party. Are those camps sharper today than they had been in previous presidential election cycles? Oh, I think so. Uh, and, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's why you have a presidential campaign. You You take stock of where you are as a party and then where you are as a nation. That's kind of what the campaign is about. But I do think there are two different views here. There is a kind of a centrist view represented mostly by former Vice President Joe Biden, who says essentially, um, let's not be extremists here. Let's basically win in 2020 by convincing people we can take um, Washington back to, to normal, back to basically conventional uh, politics. The problem with Donald Trump is that he's seen as being essentially abnormal. Uh, let's, let's, let's promote normalcy as the alternative to Donald Trump. And there is, on the other hand, a progressive wing that says, well, look, we nominated in 2016 the establishment moderate figure, Hillary Clinton, and she, got, she lost to Donald Trump, and we're not happy about that. That's the wrong thing to do. Let's do, be true to our principles, be true to our heart, move to the left. That's where we'll have passion. That's where we'll have energy. That's where we will draw the sharpest distinctions with Donald Trump, and that's where we will win. Um, I, I think the the problem with that theory may be that it misreads, as I said, what happened in 2018. The Democrats prospered in 2018 not by really moving to the left, 
but by winning places in the middle of the country that they had lost to Donald Trump previously. And, and leading that effort to move to the left has been Senator Bernie Sanders, his campaign in 2016, running again in 2020. And he delivered a speech earlier this summer at George Washington University in which he defined democratic socialism. Let's listen. So let me take this opportunity to define for you, simply and straightforwardly, what democratic socialism means to me. It means building on what Franklin Delano Roosevelt said when he fought for guaranteed economic rights for all Americans. Jerry Seib, you wrote in a recent Wall Street Journal column that these candidates pushing the field to the left does appear problematic for the Democrats. I, I think it does because of the electoral map. Um, if you look uh, at the states, the most important states to Donald Trump in 2016 were Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, and Wisconsin. Those were the states that he won that put him over the top, in addition to Florida. Uh, and by the way, it, all of us who sat through the election night on 2016 remember the moment that we thought, oh my gosh, Donald Trump actually could win. It was when Florida moved from the Hillary Clinton line to the Donald Trump line. All of those states have uh, a very large, moderate middle. Um, and the question is, can you win back those states by moving the party to the left, or do you make Donald Trump's path to reelection easier? It's hard to see a lot of states that Donald Trump didn't win in 2016, that he can flip his way in 2020. Minnesota might be one, but again, it falls into the category of kind of upper Midwest industrial states where there's a large, fairly moderate blue-collar vote. Now, the flip side to that argument that you hear from progressives in the Democratic Party is that this is a different kind of race. This is going to be a base election. This is going to be our base energized against Donald Trump's base energized. Donald Trump hasn't expanded his base, so his entire strategy is going to be about making his base more fired up, more angry, more likely to show up. We have to counter that by making our base more fired up, more energized, more angry, so that they will show up uh, to match the Trump base. And this is not going to be a race that is going to be determined by winning a bunch of people in the middle. There aren't that many people in the middle. People have decided what they think about Donald Trump already. So those are the two arguments that you hear resonating within the Democratic Party. Um, and it's going to get it's potentially going to get uh, tense and maybe even angry before it's resolved. Let me remind our listeners, we are talking with Jerry Seib. He is the executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. And let me go back, though, to what we're going to hear from the Trump campaign and from the president. He's going to say strong economy, less regulation, lower taxes. Democrats will take away your uh, health care, Medicare for all, more regulations, higher taxes. And that's going to resonate with the swing voters. I think it'll resonate with some swing voters. There's an interesting thing if you look inside polling and our polling at the Wall Street Journal and NBC News kind of has shown this for several months now. There's an there's a ceiling on Donald Trump's support in terms of people who approve of the job he's doing. It's in the mid-40s, uh, mid-40% range. Not very high, certainly not enough, you would think, to win re-election. But there's also a, a group of voters, another seven, eight, nine percentage points uh, of the electorate who don't approve of Donald Trump overall, but who say, well, he's doing a good job on the economy. Well, those are the people who provide the differential for him to win re-election potentially. In other words, people who don't like Donald Trump don't like the job he's doing overall because they disapprove of the way he conducts himself, but they're sort of starting to grudgingly give him credit for a good economy. And if that remains the case, those are the people that the Trump campaign can go after, pull their way. They won't like Donald Trump. They'll probably never like Donald Trump, but they might vote for him 
because they think he's doing a good job on the economy. And at the end of the day, that's what tends to decide presidential elections. So that's what I think Democrats need to worry about. Those people in the middle who are being pulled toward Donald Trump's uh, uh, column by a good economy, uh, you don't want to scare them further into Donald Trump's arms by making it sound as if you will undo that good economy with some policies that are too far to the left. But as you talk to Republicans in this town, whether it's Senator Mitch McConnell or other leaders of the Republican Party, What do they tell you about this president? Because he is very unconventional, and yet it is the party of Donald Trump. It's the the party of Donald Trump. They don't approve of the way he conducts himself as president, but they tell you the same thing. He gave us tax cuts, he's given us deregulation, and he's given us a lot of conservative judges. And when they put those things on the scales and put that on one side and Donald Trump's uh, behavior plus non-conservative things that he has done, uh, expanding the power of the executive branch, for example, in ways that makes make conservatives very nervous, um, uh, going farther than they want to go in in dealing uh, in stopping immigration, in undermining free trade agree- agreements that Republicans and conservatives have tended to like. They put all those things on a scale, and the part of the scale that has tax cuts, deregulation, and conservative judges weighs heavier than the other part, and that's the way re- most Republicans uh, have decided that they're going to look at. 2020. The things that he's given us outweigh the things that we don't like. As you look ahead to the debates in Detroit that will air over two nights on CNN, what are the lessons from the first debate and what are you looking for in this second round? You know, that's a really in- interesting question. Um, I think that the the lesson for, for Vice President Biden has obviously got to be he needs to do a better job of articulating the the essential Biden case for the for his nomination, which is this is this election is about Donald Trump. This is about beating Donald Trump. I can do that better than anyone else, and I'm going to do it by being the safe uh, candidate that people can trust in the middle of the political spectrum. And this is going to be about values, my values versus Donald Trump's values, man to man. I'm the person who can stand on stage and beat Donald Trump in that race. That's not a case he made particularly well. I don't think he wants this to be uh, an argument about ideology and and specific policies uh, in which he looks as if he's out of step with a progressive part of the party. So that's the Biden uh, that's the Biden case. I think there um, the the second question about the debates is going to be: Will Kamala Harris emerge again as the alternative to the big three, uh, Elizabeth Sanders? Uh, sorry, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden is is Kamala Harris clearly the fourth member of the upper tier. And the third thing I'm most curious about in these debates is what about Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who has um, uh, become kind of a media favorite, who has had a huge fundraising surge, which means he's got some support out there. $25 million. $25 million, Astonishing for somebody who was literally unknown to 99% of Americans just six or eight months ago. And who I think has this, has shown that in, in terms of this co- conversation we're having about the ideological divide in the party, as somebody who kind of wants to try to put one foot in the progressive camp and one foot in the moderate camp and straddle these two worlds, can he pull that off? That's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. And as you look at these candidates on the stage, the 20 plus that are now running, and you look at the debates next year. How do you position some of these Democrats on the stage with Donald Trump? Well, that that is a question I'm hearing from from readers of the Wall Street Journal. Can a Democrat move left in the primaries to capture this uh, uh, energy at the progressive left base of the party and then move back to the center to run against Donald Trump? 
or is that not really possible? If you're going to go uh, as far to the progressive side on the policy debate as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are, you can't really move back to the center. So how does that work against Donald Trump? Well, I think a lot of it depends on how Americans view the economy. The, the basic proposition that Elizabeth Warren articulates better than anybody, but so does uh, Bernie Sanders, is that, yeah, the economy is growing. Yes, the economy is booming. Uh, but all the benefits are going to people at the top. And it's actually a growing economy that is not addressing the needs of average Americans and, in fact, is making income inequality worse even as it grows. That's the basic proposition. And is that a winnable argument against Donald Trump when he, as you suggested earlier, says, hey, unemployment is down, growth is up, stock market's hitting record highs. Can that message from the progressive left successfully counter the, the facts and figures of the current economy. The moment people are still talking about from the second night of the MSNBC-NBC debate in Miami, Senator Kamala Harris and former Vice President Joe Biden. Let's listen. Vice President Biden, do you agree today, do you agree today that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then? No, do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, I there did was not a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. I was part of the second it, class to integrate Berkeley, it, California public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education. Because your city council made that decision. It was a so local decision. So that's where the federal government must stay. The That's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of I all have people. Supported the okay. ERA from that from the NBC debate. And Jerry Seib, he had to know, his staff had to know that that was going to come up. It was it was a kind of a puzzling response from him because they had to, you're right, they had to know it was coming up. They should have suspected it was going to come from Kamala Harris, the one African-American candidate who was on the stage. It had been much discussed in the weeks beforehand, and it's an uh, odd issue, busing, which is not really a big issue today. It's an issue of the 1970s, but it has become kind of the metaphor uh, of the progressive younger candidate rap on Joe Biden, which is he doesn't really understand the racial politics of 2020 and the 2020 Democratic Party, and he, his time has passed. He's sort of stuck in old debates. There were much. There were better responses, I thought, that Vice President Biden could have offered. He could have said, for example, um, busing was really not a very successful strategy for integration because it, bas it essentially made both sides angry and made the racial, the racial divide deeper. It didn't bridge the gaps. It made them bigger. Um, but that's not what he said. He said, essentially, well, states should have had the right to decide what they wanted to do about busing, which is kind of a states' rights argument that echoes back to, you know, the segregationist days of the 50s and 60s. Um, and he kind of got stuck there. And uh, he'll clearly have found by time the next debates roll around a way to unstick himself. And I don't think in the end either this nomination or the election is going to be determined by what people thought about busing in the 1970s. But again, it's the argument was kind of a metaphor that Kamala Harris used quite effectively to say there's a new racial political reality today that you don't get. And by the way, your time has passed. And of course, it did not help that uh, as a senator, he talked about working with uh, segregational Democrats, including Jim Eastland. This is what he said in South Carolina as he apologized for those remarks. Was I wrong a few weeks ago to somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again? Well, yes, I was. I regret it. 
And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused anybody. And what's interesting is that very rarely did we see Donald Trump apologize for anything in 2016. Rarely? Ever? <laughs> Maybe uh, once? I tried. The Excess Hollywood video? Sort of. Sort of then. Look, this is a classic problem for politicians. If you apologize, um, you basically, A, admitting that you were wrong, which is fine, but also B, you somehow come across seeming a little weak and a little unprincipled. If you don't know what you think, then why did you say it in the first place? And so that's the problem, I think, for Vice President Biden. Um I think that what the point he was trying to make, um, and it was probably a clumsy way to make it when he talked about working with segregationist senators, was I know how to work with people uh, across the political spectrum and even people I disagree with to get th- things done, and that's what's lacking in Washington now. That's actually a pretty powerful argument it, taken on its face value that that's not what happens around here anymore, and somebody who could make that happen would make this place work a lot better. That was the Joe Biden proposition. Now, why invoking the names of segregationist senators from the South to make that point was a tactical mistake for sure. Should have you apologized or just explained better? I'm not sure. I know. Um, But you can be sure that um, it's that people on the progressive left will remember what he said originally more than they remember the apology. And that if it comes to this, Donald Trump will somehow make the apology make uh, uh, as a uh, turn it into a sign of weakness on Joe Biden's part. But I wonder, you went to school in America's heartland when you were at the University of Kansas. Are people talking about how Washington works or are they talking about health care and student loans and the economy and unemployment? Is that not the, the issues that people are focused that, on? That is really an excellent question. And, and I think and this is, again, one of the things that bothers moderate Democrats right now. They think the Democrats have an advantage, particularly on health care, um, and, and, but also to some extent on, on the way the economy is working for average Americans. And they're losing that advantage by uh, talking about immigration and fighting about immigration or fighting among themselves about busing in the 1970s, that they are basically missing the opportunity to drive home a message to most Americans who worry a lot more about health care than they worry about busing in the 1970s and where Democrats have an advantage because Obamacare has actually become more popular the more imperiled it is. And the Trump administration is in court um, right now trying to basically kill off Obamacare, and that scares a lot of Americans. But Democrats aren't making that point. Um, They're talking about other things. And there's a part of this debate in which President Trump is doing what he does very effectively, which is driving the agenda. He seems to have an ability to create the agenda that other people then have to follow, including us in the news media, frankly. And that's happening to some extent, and, and moderate Republicans, um, uh, excuse me, moderate Democrats really think this is a mistake, that we should be out there reminding people every day, we're the people who are going to deliver health care to you uh, at prices you can afford, and Republicans are the ones who want to take away um, the health care you've gotten uh, via Obamacare and the uh, provision that says you can't be denied health care because of pre-existing conditions or the insurance companies have to let you keep your kids on your policy until they're 26 years old. Those things are going to go away. The Republicans want to take it away. We want to protect you. That's a better Democratic message than arguing about civil rights in the 1970s and uh, in the eyes of most moderate Democrats. And that's where they wish this debate would go at the next set of debates. 
You've been covering and watching campaigns here in Washington since 1980, which mm. was a monumental year in which you had the primary of Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter and, of course, the crowded Republican primary. But have you ever seen a Democratic primary quite like this? No, I can't even imagine 24 candidates. Um, and, you know, in a way, it was a, a path paved by what Republicans did uh, four years ago in 2016, where you had 16, 17 candidates, depending on how you depending on how you count on it, uh, count it, and there was a sense that the um, the old hierarchy didn't work anymore. You know, Republicans used to nominate unfailingly the guy whose turn it had come whether absolutely Bob Dole or George Bush or George H W. But you know, whoever was next in line got the nomination. And Democrats kind of did a similar thing, not as not as orderly, but there was a sense that there was would emerge a kind of an establishment favorite, and that establishment favorite would be nominated, Hillary Clinton. Nobody feels that way about the two parties. It seems wide open on both sides right now. And what's interesting about what's happening on the on the Democratic Party side is what we've been talking about, that there's a genuine um, ideological uh, substantive conversation that's underway. It's not just about personalities. It is about what's the policy direction of the party. Um, and that was true for Republicans to some extent in 2016. There were a lot of conventional conservative candidates. And then there was Donald Trump, who proposed a completely different direction for the party, a populist nationalist direction for the Republican Party. And to the surprise of just about everybody, including Donald J. Trump, he won with that message. So that changed the direction of the party. Well, Democrats don't just have a crowded field now. They have a crowded field that is basically conducting a similar debate on the left. I was recently with former President Jimmy Carter, and in discussing his own bid in 1976, he talked about what we often refer to as the invisible primary in 1975. And, and he said, I made a lot of mistakes. I was glad I was not getting a lot of attention. Could not imagine running today, a year before the nominating convention, in which it, it feels as if it's already a general election with the debates and the scrutiny and the coverage that these candidates are now getting. Yeah. And you, you have this sense that nobody's allowed any mistakes in this environment because everything is instantly uh, amplified in this environment and everything is basically a 20 in a 24 7 news cycle everything becomes a headline instantly there is no there is no and and this is what vice president biden is going through there is no time or opportunity to really calmly explain yourself in this environment i don't think that's good for the process certainly not easy for the candidates probably not good for the country it creates a kind of a uh, an environment in which everybody's shouting all the time at each other and at the voters um, and at the other side. And it's kind of hard to have a reasonable conversation. I, I, I think you and I both know that there was a time covering presidential campaigns. And I used to think that the best time to cover a presidential campaign wasn't in the year of the election, but the year before the election, because you could go out, you could go on the road with candidates. It was calmer. They were dealing with small crowds. There wasn't that much attention being paid. It was a lot of it was at the grassroots. And you could get to know the candidates. You could hear what they were saying uh, without the volume turned up so loud. Uh, and you could see them actually interact with real voters. And you got a sense of that, um, the, the real meaning of their candidacy. None of that really happens now. It's from, from the beginning, it's basically a high decibel, high uh, octane campaign uh, with every uh, issue kind of um, amped up. And I, I think President Carter was right that what he did in 1975 was really essential to laying the groundwork for his candidacy, and he couldn't do it now. As you look at some of these other candidates, whether it's Senators Klobuchar or Gillibrand or Congressman Tim Ryan or some of the other contenders, do you see any of them breaking through? You know, I think Cory Booker broke through a little bit in the first round of the first set of debates because he had a he had a kind a kind of a 
a, a, a well-reasoned message that was a, a little on the left, but he kind of got his points in effectively, and that was useful. I think the other the most fascinating person in the second tier uh, is, is is really Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Um, uh, he uh, is very articulate. He's calm in, 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 in this environment we're talking about, which everybody seems to be yelling at each other all the time. He's the guy who's not yelling. He's the guy on the stage who is basically trying to sound reasonable and not rising to the bait. Is that a winning uh, approach in 2020? I think we're about to find out. Uh, you know, aside from the fact that he's unconventional, he's a mayor, not a senator, or a congressman, or a governor. Um, he's openly gay, uh, married to a, a, another man. Is is that okay now in 2020? It's a great Rorschach test for the for the party, and then ultimately potentially for the country. Um, I think he's the guy who's offering a completely different approach, and we'll find out in the next set of debates. I think whether that's going to take off or flatline. Well, to that point of uh, Pete Buttigieg and the cover story of Time magazine, when you saw both he and his husband mm. and the title, the caption, First Family. Yeah, it's remarkable. Uh, who would have guessed? Again, we're, we're talking about things that would have been seen as way over the line uh, just four years ago, and that's certainly one of them, uh, much as Medicare for All would have been, much as decriminalizing illegal immigration would have been, much as a 70% top tax rate would have been. But you know, has the country moved that much in the last four years? Um, you know, we'll find out. You remember that there was a time when Barack Obama, Democratic president, uh, a fairly progressive Democratic president, was trying to hold the line against gay marriage. It wasn't so long ago. It was in the last decade. And now here's where we are. It's a, it is a country that moves, and it's one of the great things about America is it changes. It's not static. The question is always, has the middle of the country changed as much as the people on either side, the left or the right, think it has. Let me bring it back to the CNN debates in Detroit and a piece that you wrote, by the way, all of your work available online at WSJ.com. The Democratic debates sorted the field, but did they persuade voters? Well, this goes back to the thing we've been talking about there. I think the the first impression a lot of people got from those debates was probably of a party that is moving uh, decidedly to the left. And the issues that were being discussed uh, were issues that the progressive wing of the party has pushed to the forefront. And the question I was raising in that uh, column, which I wrote literally the night after the second debate, was whether that perception is going to win over the votes in the middle of the electorate that Democrats are going to need to beat Donald Trump. Um, you, you know, you, what's the what's, what do mothers tell their kids? You don't get a second chance to make a first impression. You know, that was the issue, I, in my mind at least, after that first debate. Uh, but again, uh, the counter argument is it's a long process. We're only in uh, July of the year before the presidential election, so we'll see. There's a long there's a long way to travel on this road. But I do think first impressions matter, and we're in the first impression stage. Final question: Do you think we could see the possibility? of a brokered convention in this cycle? You know, we ask ourselves this question every four years, and the answer has always been no, and I'll stick with no. I think I've become convinced that the two things really are tantalizing to talk about, but just not really very possible. One I guess is, we would like that, right? We that would, would love it. Yeah, of course we would. It's, it would be great fun. Um, but I just don't think the party uh, establishment, um, which still exists to some extent, will let it get to that. So a brokered convention, I don't think so. The other one we always play around with, could there be a third party or an uh, independent candidacy? You know, Ross Perot just died in Texas, reminded us all of how close he came to creating a viable independent candidacy in 1992. But even that one, he won 19% of the vote. 
didn't win a single state or a single electoral college vote, and nobody's come particularly close since then. So, you know, we love every four years to talk about broker conventions and a possible independent candidacy or a third-party candidacy that makes a difference, and it never really happens. So I'm going to stick with the it won't happen. But we do know one thing for certain, a lot of news cycles between now and the early primaries and caucuses. That's lots to, yes, this is the great thing. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a jobs program for political journalists, this idea. Jerry Seib is the executive Washington editor of The Wall Street Journal. Thank you for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio studios. We appreciate it. My pleasure. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. 